Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. What is known of the private, secluded, and secret process of how the Pope of the Catholic Church is elected is told when the sitting Pope is thought to be near death and when a new Pope is about to be elected. The novel The Last Pope by David Osborne takes us inside the world of the Vatican and the American branch of the Catholic Church. Fictional relationships between the conservative and reform branches of the Catholic Church are tellingly revealed in a novel that combines characters from both of these groups. I spoke with David Osborne, a former World War II Marine Corps pilot from his home in Connecticut, about the last pope and about some of his life's experiences. I asked him to begin by describing how he foresees the election of the next Pope in relationship to his novel, The Last Pope. In The Last Pope, uh, the setting is a papal conclave. It pits the forces of of relative uh, uh, liberality against the forces of real Real, real reactionaryism in the church, uh, good versus evil, if you wish. But it also shows exactly what happens in a conclave and exactly how the vote goes. And I think uh, the comparison that I make in the book with with the current situation is is very real. The current situation is that you have a, uh, a basically reactionary pope who has suppressed any any liberal thinking that there is in the church. And I'm talking about the, his own theologians. Uh, who would take the church back, in a sense, to pre-Vatican II and before John the Twenty-Third? I think it would be important for some of the listeners who don't know what that means, pre-Vatican II and John the Twenty-Third, if you could explain that. Sure, Vatican II was a was called by John the Twenty-Third. Uh, John the Twenty-Third was that famous, rotund, rather peasant-like pope in the '60s, who the whole world absolutely adored because he was so down to earth and so real that he was loved as much by non-Catholics as he was by Catholics. This was a pope who was really a pope of the people. And what he did was to call a synod of bishops from all over the world. There were 2,000 of them, uh, 2,800 and odd number, I think 47, who assembled at the Vatican each year for four years during the autumn months, the months in the fall, to open up the Catholic Church to change its general, its general dogma and its, and its general rules and regulations and to open up the Church to the world where, whereas it had been relatively a shut organization to the world. He changed a lot of the, of the doctrine of the Church. Uh, he kept basic doctrines like, like uh, a ban against contraception and, uh, and, and uh, he, kept, he kept celibacy among the priesthood. But he opened up basically uh, a lot of other stuff. He he allowed uh, the mass in the church to be spoken in in a language other than Latin. Uh, he uh, changed the general protocol between the bishops and the laity, so that there was a greater contact between between the bishops and the cardinals of the church and the people they were representing. Those were two of the biggest things that he did. So that he did what he did more than that was just through the force of his personality and with a lot of minor stuff that was done in the way of doctrinal change, he brought the Catholic Church up into the into the current uh, then the current century last the last century, and 
opened it up to the world so that it was no longer kind of a suspicious, uh, semi-paranoid and, and you know, antagonistic organization. Now that that is uh, that's have... quite a charge or quite a statement about the current organization of the church. If you're saying it was going to go to pre-Vatican II. Well, I think yeah. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's completely accurate. They might not want to go to pre-Vatican II, but but they haven't. They haven't gone forward from Vatican II. Let's put it that way. They've they've either stagnated at Vatican II, and there's a lot of the attitude has been pre-Vatican II. Yes, uh, one of the one of the most 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 virulent expressions of the Church being pre-Vatican II comes out from uh, the Church trying to be comes out through Mel, through Mel Gibson and 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 his film The Passion. Uh, How so? He, well, he belongs to a sect of a uh, certain sect of extreme Orthodox Catholics who would really like to bring it back to the Middle Ages, and and uh, uh, the Passion is was you know was part of all that. Uh, well, the one, today, one of the uh, interesting things of the Middle Ages was the Intercetera Bull of uh, 1492, that said any person who is not Catholic should be converted or killed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that still, that doctrine and that bull has still not been rescinded by any pope since that time. I know, I know. Well, that you, this is like one of the blue laws that we have, uh, you know, in in, in uh, New England. The, the thing that the thing that I tried to bring out in the book was was that a conclave, a papal conclave after the death of a pope, determines what the next pope will be and what the course of the church will be. There's an enormous schism in the Catholic Church today, especially in the United States, where many, many Catholics are either abandoning the Church or would like to see a major reform in the Church. The Church is losing a thousand priests a year. Uh, people want, uh, the Catholics want, want contraception. They talk about ending celibacy in the priesthood. They talk about the ordination of women as priests. They talk about women's rights and equality for women. The Vatican talks about none of these except in a negative sense. You have a current pope who is who is uh, an extremely reactionary pope and, and has a long history of that, who has packed the College of Cardinals with hand-picked people who are very likely to vote exactly the way he wants, which means that in the conclave, when they're in, in complete secrecy and going through the intricate voting procedures and, and the politicking that goes on, uh, the ferocious politicking that goes on, you're very likely to see a pope elected of the same vein as the current pope, and that is not going to forward the forward the uh, uh, the happiness of the Catholic Church one bit, because what it's going to do is make the schism even even worse. And I think it 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 you you are seeing a moment in the history of the Catholic Church in which the whole foundation of the Church is threatened. And by being threatened, it has a potential for the next pope to be the last pope, uh, as in the name of your book. That's right. How would that be? How would how would a church of that uh, dominion be? Well, in the last pope, it's, it's actually the the complete reverse of that, because uh, without giving away too much of the book, uh, because it is it is a book of suspense. It's a novel after all, and I don't want to give away the whole plot. The secret of the title is is to be found virtually in the last page of the book. Uh, if the reforms that that uh, the man who becomes pope would like to see put into practice to 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 bring the church forward into the into the current century it could very well be that because of those reforms that he might be the last pope that's posing a, a bit of a conundrum for the reader but i think that would become very clear as they read the book
What prompted you to write this book, uh, yourself being a non-Catholic person? It's a funny thing. Two things happened. One, uh, I was expatriated from this country and worked and lived in Europe for 25 or 30 years. Uh, I became more and more aware the longer I lived in Europe, which is really sort of the roots of, of the United States, if you wish, or our ancestral roots, I became more and more aware of the extreme importance of the Catholic Church to Western civilization. At the same time, it's, it, it's threaded all through our civilization, the Catholic Church. Is. It's in our literature, it's in our art, it's in our music, it's everywhere. Uh, even in spite of Protestantism and the, and the, and the breakaway from, from, from Catholicism by Luther, it's still everywhere. It's threaded through every part of our life. And I, I have a deep and devoted uh, patriotism towards Western civilization. I think it's the greatest, the greatest civilization and the highest civilization that man has ever produced. I felt that the civilization was threatened because I felt the church was threatened. That was one thing that happened to me. It happened, I felt it very strongly. Almost simultaneously with that, I was doing some research for a book in the British Library in London, and I stumbled across a completely archaic, unknown work by Thomas Trollope, who was the brother of Anthony Trollope, the novelist, written in, I think, 1876 or 1867, something like that, I can't remember the date, which was called The Papal Conclave. And it revealed in detail every single aspect that goes on in the secrecy of the Vatican when the, when the, when the, college, when the college of Cardinals meets to vote for a new pope. I was fascinated by this thing. I read the book, thought about it, came to the United States, lost my notes that I took because they wouldn't let it out of the library, was desperate to try to find another, book, another one. When the, by this time, I was thinking of writing something about a papal conclave. The Library of Congress didn't have one and said they thought the British Library had the only one in the world. And then they found one and phoned me up one day, and they said, you're not going to believe where we found the book. We think it's the only other one in existence that's, that's not in a private library. It was in the Midshipman Library at Annapolis, of <laughs> all places. So I rushed down there, and, and, and they let me copy the whole book, which I did. And I studied, I studied the Papal Conclave, and I, having written you know, suspense stuff for years and then having written thrillers for years, my mind started to take that course. And I started to construct a story around the Papal Conclave in which there would be in the Conclave the forces of good pitted against the forces of evil. That's what happened. You mentioned that uh, you self-expatriated. What was going on in the United States at the time you left? And, and, and Joseph McCarthy and, and the big witch hunt. I got caught up in that completely. How so? What happened was that I had started a, um, a company with a friend of mine, who had, he was an editor for Sponsor Magazine at the time, and he'd made an extraordinary discovery, was that in 19, I think it was 1946, there were only four radio stations in the United States which were beaming programs to, African, to, to Afro-Americans. In 1952, there were something like 460 stations beaming programs to Afro-Americans, and all the programming was white programming. So he and I got together. We figured the two things. We figured we'd do something that was socially beneficial. We felt very strongly about that. And we also figured we'd make a buck. 
So we went to the uh, NAACP, got their backing, went to the National Urban League, got their backing, went to Lena Horne at the time, she was very interested, went to Josh White, who was very famous at the time, and he was extremely interested in what we did, and we put together some programming, which we would then, in those days, it was acetates, which we planned to lease out at a, uh, at a reasonable fee to radio stations all over the United States to beam black programming to blacks. And it's not a, I'm not, it, it wasn't a question of white versus black or anything else. This was just their own programming that had to do with ethnic Afro-Americans completely. And this was in what year? This was in 1954 and 5. We put this thing together. We went out. Everybody at that time was aware of the fact that we had a population of African-Americans in the United States, and they wanted to advertise to them, so everybody was waiting for the show. I mean, this was the, Our first show was the flagship. The thing was, was a soap opera and uh, called Rock of Ages. And uh, it was about a former quarterback uh, for a major NFL team who had become a minister and all his problems with his family and his life and so forth and so on. And our star was William Marshall, who was probably the major, the major African-American actor in the United States at the time. He was an extraordinary gifted person and a gigantic personality. We went out to the advertiser to all the people, and then all of a sudden people who'd been begging us to hurry up with the show, nobody would talk to us. And after a week of dead silence, I got the cast and everybody together, and I knew, I knew something had gone wrong, and I said, who's the communist? At which point, Big Bill Marshall stood up and said, well, I've been accused of being one, but I'm not. And that was the end of our program. That was the end of us. That was the end of all the money we put into it. Uh, we eventually got, it was, it was a blackmail deal by, that, by, that, uh, by the newspaper, whatever it was called, that came out of Rochester, New York. And then what they had done was, was to, uh, without going into too much detail, it really smeared him completely simply because he got such great reviews for for uh, for his off-Broadway productions and and uh, for appearing in Othello and uh, on Broadway and for and for his performance in Captain Hook, and the Daily Worker had had praised him to high heaven, the communist paper. So they were saying this is a man that the commies love, and it was this kind of nonsense. And then he was caught on his on his stage at the time, uh, renting a renting a theater for, uh, for to do a, uh, a picture on 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 a Douglas, the great African American orator. Uh, uh, to do a do a stage play, stage play rather, and he rented the theater. It was a big theater in a church, and he rented it from Monday through Saturday night. And somebody else had it on Sunday, and the somebody else who had it on Sunday, who he didn't know who they were even, uh, was accused by the House on American Activities Committee of possibly being a party front organization. So he was accused of sharing his stage with the Reds too. Uh, I spent five years in the Marine Corps in some heavy combat during the war in the South Pacific, and I was so infuriated by what had happened uh, and that what was happening in this country and the fact that McCarthy was running decent people out of right into the grave, some of them. I just left the country and I decided I wouldn't come back here again. I went to Europe. How long were you gone? That was I left in 1955, and I came back in 1978, and then I was here for uh, eight years and went back over again with my with my wife for um, six years to London, six or seven years to London, uh, and then came back here permanently. Uh, I the first went over. I had I was broke. Uh, I sold my first movie. I, I I lost my job. I mean, I was blacklisted all over the place because of uh, the smear in, in the newspaper counterattack. 
uh, we lost the whole thing. We lost the programming. We lost everything. And and I was uh, so I, I you know I was broke. And 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 I wrote a movie uh, with my friend, and we sold it. Uh, a thing called Chase a Crooked Shadow, which was later considered extremely successful. It was listed by the British Academy of Motion Pictures as one of the ten best suspense scripts ever written at the time. Uh, and that was just enough to let me buy a, buy a small house in France. I had a rock quarry behind it. I needed money, so I went to work mining rock for four years. Uh, during that time, the picture was produced in London, and it it uh, I went up for the premiere and was offered a, a, a job immediately to write something else, and I found myself in the British film industry, where I happily thrived for many years. I want to ask you about that and some of your other experiences in Europe, but first I want to say that this week on Radio Curious, we're talking with David Osborne, the author of a book called The Last Pope, a story about the papal conclave, and with some anticipation about the future papal conclave that uh, may be happening at some time, we don't know when. You are listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. David, you mentioned a few moments ago that while you were in Europe, you saw that Western civilization and the Catholic Church were being threatened. What were those threats that you observed towards Western civilization? Well, I, I saw the threat towards Western civilization because of, of what I saw as a threat towards the Catholic Church. And the threat towards the Catholic Church was what I, what I saw was a, a virtual abandonment, in a sense, of the Church and, and what the Church stood for by a great number of Catholics and that the growing schism in the United States between between the ordinary Catholic, the ordinary man in the street, the laity, if you wish, and the Vatican. And I felt that the Vatican was becoming further and further isolated and removed from reality. Uh, and I felt that you can't, you can't, you know, you can't backslide into, it's backslide into the past, and you can't not face reality and continue. And therefore, in a sense, I felt the Church was threatened, and because the Church was threatened, I thought the civilization was threatened. What were the draws, as you observed them, uh, to cause, as you say, the Catholic Church to be further and further removed from reality? Well, I think that they absolutely flatly refuse to recognize the, a lot of the modern problems that they have. For example, let's, let's just pick one. Let's pick the growing scarcity of priests in the United States. Priests, you have to have a priest in order to... to uh, perform or or, or or to constitute the sacraments of the church. That has to be handled by a priest. It can't be handled by anybody else. A lot of the Catholics are now going out of the, with their various sacraments. And don't ask me to list them. But uh, but a lot of a lot of Catholics are going with without the sacraments that are necessary, because there's not a priest around to do it. At the same time, there are a lot of women who would like very much to become priests. And I'm sure it would be extremely able. The Episcopalian Church has discovered, has discovered that. And yet the Vatican flatly refuses to even think about having a woman ordained as a priest. The attitude of the, of the Vatican towards women always, in a sense, is that woman is a second-class citizen. And I think this is, this is an example of, 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 of the, the gulf, if you wish, between Vatican thinking and the thinking of the laity. You get into contraception. More than half of the Catholic women in the United States regularly use contraception, probably much more than half. 
and yet the Vatican says this is, this is a major sin. So the average Catholic woman who is using contraception, and she goes to confession, and she wants to confess that she, that she has sinned, the confession becomes really banal to her. It's not really a confession. It's just to get rid of the priest for a minute or it's to say it. Or she doesn't say it at all. Or she doesn't go to confession. And this, this is all then falling apart. Do you see what I mean? One of the worst things that's happened is the gulf between the bishops and the laity. The lack of, of, of direct communication between the archbishops in the diocese all over the United States and the laity in the street. This is one of the things which has allowed this ghastly crime of pedophilia to exist because of the secrecy and the lack of communication. But these are not foolish people. Uh, they understand what's going on, and they understand how to persuade and motivate uh, uh, people in the laity. But why, then, is this occurring? I don't know. I just don't know. that This is you dealing with, a, with, 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 why, with why in any uh, uh, walk of life is somebody going to cling to conservatism to the point where where they're going to annul themselves or annihilate themselves? It's it's uh, the church just will not give up uh, under the present pope. It won't, and the danger is with a future pope who's going to who's going to be just like him that it's going to get worse. But with a with an entirely different kind of pope, with a pope with a much more open open mind towards the future, with a with a with a new John the Twenty Third, for example, who really had a feeling about the man in the street, then a lot of this stuff would would be healed, I think, because I think he would he would order up a new synod of bishops, a new a new Vatican II, if you wish, another call it Vatican III, and I think he would he would start to change some of the some of the centuries old doctrinaire of the church the way John the twenty third did to bring the church more in line with the with the needs of the of the of the man in the street. There's very few people can afford families of ten children, you know, and very few women who want that. That whole thing of of your contraception has to be cleared up. It's it's become ridiculous. Do you see it happening? Yes. If it this depend this depends on what they get for a pope. And this is this is why this current election coming up is so vitally important, really important. If 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 they get a hardline reactionary in there, nothing's going to happen. Uh, and that's what you seem to be predicting. I'm predicting that's going to happen here. I predict in my book that it could go the other way. In other words, in my book it goes the other way. It's not a prediction, but but in in actuality, I think it's going to go the wrong way. In my book, I almost have it go the wrong way. Well, David, um, what are you working on now? You know, I'm trying to figure that out. I have that that awful sense of letdown that one finishes what one has when one finishes a, a, a work which has totally occupied your mind for a couple of years. Uh, the last pope was a funny thing because because I I had laid it to rest for a while because I wasn't at all satisfied with how it with how it worked. And then, at the urging of my wife, I picked it up again. And, and when I picked it up again, I went after it with a tremendous intensity, a complete and major overhaul of, of, of what I thought was basically a bad novel, and turned out what I thought was a good one. That left me with a sort of feeling of emptiness now. I mean, where do I go? Uh, I was typed for years as a thriller writer. I wrote some very successful thrillers, uh, a couple of them bestsellers. I just somehow... I wanted to get into something more serious. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid I'm one of those people, in, in a sense, a dinosaur, because my reading is mostly 19th century literature. I don't keep up much with modern literature. So, so I'd like to write a really good, serious novel about 
about people where, where the whole novel came out of characters and out of people and their struggle in life. I think part of it might, a good deal of it might be for the first time in my life autobiographical because I've had a pretty hectic life. Uh, I would like to see perhaps a, an old man reviewing his life in a sense uh, and getting involved in one last adventure. Uh, my life has been a series of major adventures. Can I ask how old you are? Yes, <laughs> you can. Uh, I have to tell you a funny story. I woke up on September 30th, which was my birthday, looked around the room, sat up, and started to laugh. And I laughed my head off. And you know why? I laughed my head off because I was 80 years old, and I couldn't believe it. I thought it was the funniest damn thing that had ever happened to me, and I still do. I mean, I, I'm, I'm chuckling to myself while I'm talking. I can't believe it. I'm sitting here with my feet up on the desk. I don't feel 80. I've got two teenage kids, one 17, one 15, with all the problems that every parent has with teenagers. Uh, I've had other marriages, and I've, I've had other children. I've got eight altogether in the world. And uh, I started all over again with a beautiful young woman when I was 60, and we've had nothing but 20 years of absolute bliss together. She's a remarkable and wonderful woman, my wife. We're still, after 20 years, desperately in love with each other. And I feel great. I expect to keep right on going for another 15 or 20 years. Well, good for you. I hope you do. I hope so, too. <laughs> well, David Osborne, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Well, you know, I've read Naked, which I thought was hysterically funny. Uh... I read I read one book which I absolutely love, which was Bel Canto. I think it's a very fine and wonderful piece of writing. And I read uh, an extraordinary book, which I think is one of the best pieces of writing I've, I've read in many years for, for any century. It was a thing called Blind, which is about an entire population of a country going blind and what happens when they do. It starts off with a guy at a traffic light. And when the light changes, he suddenly goes blind and he can't see and he doesn't know what to do. And cars hooting and honking all around him. And finally people get out. What's the matter? And he says, I'm blind. I'm blind. I was unbelievably impressed with the, with the, with the skill of that writer who came up with that one. Uh, and outside of that, I'm going through uh, Marcel Proust's uh, Remembrance of Things Past for the second time. And I'm, I'm on volume, volume three out of seven volumes at the moment. Well, David Osborne, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And delightful. Thank you very much for having me. David Osborne is the author of The Last Pope. The books he recommends are Naked by David Sedaris, Blindness by Nobel Prize winner Jose Saramago, Bel Canto by Anne Patchett, and Remembrance of Things Past by Marcel Proust. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious are available. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.